say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Ghost Hunting in New England, your favorite spooky podcast. Hello and happy Wednesday. Welcome to this week's episode of Ghost Hunting in New England with your hosts, Amelia. And Beth. And today is the Halloween episode. Ooh. Yay. And you know what it's going to be? Really what? cool and interesting. Sure is. Because tonight we're talking about the Lizzie Borden house in Fall River, Massachusetts. Yes. And interestingly enough, do we know that the Lizzie Borden house is in the Bridgewater Triangle? Yes, because it is in Fall River. So it's a nice full circle for the whole season that we started with the Bridgewater Triangle and we're ending with something in the Bridgewater Triangle. Ooh, very, very true. Mm. I just thought of that right now. That's great. I like that. And... When we're done talking about the Lizzie Borden house, we got a ton of listener ghost stories this week to go through. Ah, uh, we did. Yeah, this is this is a big episode. This is the the season three big hurrah finale just in time for Halloween. That if it weren't for COVID, we would probably be up in Salem recording from somewhere up there. Probably, yeah, yeah. Except they've closed it all down, and they're saying everybody stay away. So Amelia and I talked about it. We're going to go stop by Pentagram probably next week after after Halloween itself and after everything kind of calms down up there a little. Yes. Support Salem year-round. It's still spooky in April. Not quite as spooky because everybody takes down their spooky stuff, but, and, you know, there's something much spookier about leaves falling than there is about little, like, buds coming out on the trees. It's still fun in April. They took a big hit this year, so let's go year-round. Okay. Everyone took a big hit this year. Okay. So, Beth, do you want to get started? Sure. After all this time, you know how much I love to bore you with the historical details about places that are haunted. Um, In fact, my original idea for the opening of the show was to find a super early account of a haunting, like ancient Sumerian or something, and make the case of hauntings and ghosts being as old as time. But I ran short on research time and found it easier to just write off that teaser we opened the first few shows with before the talented Aaron Shilb, did I say it right? Yeah. Provided us with our Brocken intro music. I miss that old music. And since I'm the editor this week, maybe I'll just sneak it in right here. But if I decide not to, and with Amelia giving me the stink eye, I imagine maybe I won't. You can always go back and check out any of the first five episodes from season one and hear it there. So um, what are we talking about? Oh, Lizzie Borden. Okay. So we all know the old rhyme, right? Say it with me, Amelia. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Yay! All right. So let's start with two giant pieces of information in that little four-line ditty. First, Abby Borden was not Lizzie's mother, 
And Lizzie was very clear with investigators about that. Uh, we'll have more on that later. Uh, also, do you really think she hit anyone with an axe 81 times? Amelia, have you ever swung an axe? Yes, I was in an axe throwing club last summer. Are those axes, not hatchets? You can do either. Okay. I did mine with hatchets, but I okay. did swing an axe a few times with her. Okay. But the, the axe is like big. It's like swinging a, a giant rake with a, a wedge on the end of it, right? They're heavy. Yeah. Either way, they're heavy. I mean, 40 times with a hatchet, an axe, a screwdriver, I mean, anything. You got to have good you know, upper body strength for that. Right. So I, I mean, I was thinking 81 wax or a lot of times to swing a heavy axe and that like jarring sensation at each impact when it hits the person like, uh, no. So, um, Abby Borden was struck 18, maybe 19 times. And Andrew was hit 11 times. So 30 swings seems much more reasonable. I don't think I could swing an axe 81 times, but I could probably do 30. Should we work on rewriting that song to correct the record? What do you think? What would it say instead? I don't know. Lizzie Borden took an axe and to her stepmother, 18 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 11. That's a little catchier the other way, right? All right. So Lizzie Andrew Borden. Did you know that was her middle name? I did not. Yeah, it was her father's name. And what's weird is she was the younger of two daughters by 10 years. I don't know the older daughter's middle name, but her first name's Emma. But so it just, it seems strange to name your daughter Lizzie. It's not even Elizabeth, it's Lizzie. And then her father's exact name. So Lizzie Andrew Borden. Maybe it was a custom in the 1860s. Maybe not. Maybe it's just the beginning of a bunch of crappy things in her life. I, I don't know. Um, when she was two years old, her mother died. It's very sad. Um, she died of uterine congestion and spinal disease. Yeah. Uh, I had to look up what that means. Do you want to know what it means? Sure. Okay. So basically, it's varicose veins, but in your pelvic area. Usually, we think about varicose veins like happening in your legs, but they, they can actually happen in lots of different areas of your body. So um, veins do that important thing where they bring blood back to your lungs to drop off uh, carbon dioxide, and they pick up oxygen, and they head back to the heart. Um, and they do this by constantly constricting and dilating to keep the blood moving in the right direction. But when you get varicose veins, your veins become stretched out, for lack of a better term. And when they constrict, they're no longer closing all the way. And so the blood can run backwards. And so the veins get yeah. really dark and noticeable because there's pooled blood just sitting there. So I'm not sure how exactly this turns into death, but I'm guessing it's probably some sort of like a blood clot that'll lead to a stroke or something like that. But so yeah. um, that's how her mother died when she was two. And so that leaves us the 40-year-old Andrew Borden, sorry, 41-year-old Andrew Borden. He's a widower, raising two daughters all alone in 1862 Fall River. He's busy building a real estate and manufacturing empire, and so he had to remarry. Um, it would have been scandalous not to, and he really needed somebody to take care of these, these two girls. It's kind of interesting. Hmm? Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you know, one thing that's you know, kind of interesting. I mean, it's the mid 1800s and this guy is what, like 27 when he has his first kid? 27, 28? Yeah, he married. I mean, I could probably do the math. Where's my thing? Yes. So his first kid was 10 years older. Yeah. And she was two when her mom died. He was 41. So yeah, he would have been like 29. 23 in 1945 so, or 1845. So he was born in 1822 to 1850. Yeah. 
So 27. But I mean, it wouldn't have been unusual for a man to have been that old. You don't think so? No, he would have been off like doing, you know, important business things. And then he would have married a young woman. Like it wouldn't have been unusual even for a 40 year old man to be having his first child with his 23 year old wife. In the 1800s? Yep, absolutely. After his his first wife died, um, three years later, he meets and marries Abby Gray, and she's a 37-year-old, quote, old maid. Her father was a pushcart vendor, and she was stunned and, of course, completely excited about the opportunity to marry up into uh, Andrew Borden's social circle of society. Uh, so they got married on June 6th, 1865. And I, I kind of got thinking about, you know, 1865 and the Civil War. And so this is actually three weeks after the end of the Civil War. And so I, I wonder if this was one of those like, you know, just excitement sort of weddings that like there are big, exciting things happening in the world and people run off and get married. So, uh, of course, I couldn't find any sort of answer about that, but it just made me think about it. I did find an interesting little chronology of Lizzie Borden, and there was a note in there. Abby had married her father in 1865, so Lizzie would have been five years old. And in 1887, it's just this note that says 1887, Lizzie Borden stops calling her stepmother mother. You know, 14-year-old girls, that's, that. it's just what they do, right? They're, they, they can be difficult sometimes. Were you a difficult 14-year-old, Amelia? I was. Yeah, I would say I was probably a difficult 14-year-old too. You but um, then in another source that I was looking at, I read that both Lizzie and Emma, her older sister, called Abby, not mom, not stepmom, not Abby. They called her Mrs. Borden, which I was just like, wow, that's so formal. And it, it really says so much about their relationship right there. So that makes me think that like the stepmom asked them to do it. Maybe. I couldn't I couldn't really find anything uh, that talked about what kind of a woman uh, Abby Borden was other than little statements that Lizzie had made over the years. Lizzie and Emma were not close with Abby, uh, although all four members of the family lived in the house together. Uh, Lizzie and Emma were interested in parties and going to church, social gatherings, charitable events. And their father was this miserable, rich, get off my lawn type of person. Uh, he was super cheap. He owned several properties as rental investments. Uh, he had a manufacturing company that he was uh, the, the head of. They had a live-in Irish maid, but they had no electricity or indoor plumbing. And these were things that Lizzie especially really wanted. Uh, she liked to wear nice things. She wanted to have the the modern conveniences. And so, you know, at, at this point in our story, we have this poor girl named Lizzie Andrew, whose mother died when she was a toddler, whose miserly father remarries an old maid to raise his kids. And that old maid stepmother had such an icy relationship that Lizzie calls her Mrs. Borden. So this all sounds really healthy, right? So right near Lizzie's 31st birthday, there was a break-in in the house that she and her family had lived in since 1845. Uh, there were cash and jewelry stolen. Lizzie, Emma, and their Irish maid, Bridget, who they called Maggie, which I thought was a weird thing. They were all home when the robbery happened, and Lizzie was the person the family suspected. She had been accused of shoplifting earlier in her life. Uh, so after the robbery, the house was kept locked at all times. All the internal and external doors were all locked all the time. So that's that's just crazy. 
That um, is crazy. So now we get to the day in question. Uh, and should we take a break and talk about the murder after this commercial message? November 3rd is election day in the United States. Please exercise your right to vote. Mail-in, early voting, or traditional voting, just make sure you're heard. Go to IWillVote.com to find out if you're registered. You can register to vote or find a location to vote. Your voice counts. Hi again. So the morning of August 4th, 1892 was bright and hot. Emma was away visiting friends. John Morse, Andrew's former brother-in-law and Lizzie's uncle, stayed at the house the previous night. He had breakfast with Andrew and Abby around 7 a.m. and set off on his errands for the day by 8.45. Abby begins cleaning the house. Bridget is feeling ill, so she goes outside to vomit, and Andrew leaves to walk to town and mail some letters. Lizzie makes her appearance close to 9 a.m. and eats her breakfast in the kitchen. Bridget is outside cleaning windows and doesn't see a messenger arrive with a note asking Abby to come to a neighbor's house. Abby is upstairs now cleaning the bedrooms. A little before 11 a.m., Andrew Borden makes his way home. Bridget lets him into the house, and she hears a soft laugh from upstairs. Lizzie stops into the living room to see her father and let him know Abby received a message and has gone to a neighbor's house. Andrew lays down to take a nap, and Lizzie goes out to the barn to find some lead sinkers, which are fishing lures, for a coming fishing trip. Bridget, still feeling ill, goes to her bedroom in the attic to lay down. And while she lies there, she hears the church bells chime 11 a.m. A few minutes later, she hears Lizzie screaming at her to come quick because someone killed Andrew. Then the chaos breaks out. The police are tramping through the house, looking at Andrew's body, declaring him dead. Although based on some of the other descriptions I read, his face was unrecognizable from the beating. So I don't know why they had to think about it. They had him covered up in a call to the coroner to do the postmortem examination on the dining room table. When a neighbor... Adelaide Churchill comes to comfort Lizzie. It's now over half an hour later, and they finally discover Abby Borden's body upstairs. Everyone thought she was a neighbor based on Lizzie's story about the messenger with the note, and Lizzie had just assumed that Abby had left. During this whole scene, Lizzie is interviewed by Deputy Fleet of the Fall River Police. When the deputy referred to Abby as Lizzie's mother, Lizzie's response was uncharacteristic and inappropriate for the circumstances. She loudly and vehemently insists, she is not my mother. She is my stepmother. My mother died when I was a toddler. The rest of her statements were confusing and contradictory, and she kept changing her version of the story, and their suspicions were raised. So Lizzie was arrested for murder on August 9th, 1892, five days after the murder happened. And her trial was the 1892-1893 version of the 1995 O.J. Simpson trial. It was a national sensation. People were talking about it everywhere. She hired her own dream team of attorneys to defend her, including the former governor of Massachusetts. And on June 5th, 1893, the trial began. The jury was 12 men, and the main ploy of the defense was to convince this jury that the church-going, respectful, loved-by-the-community, delicate woman could never have committed such terrible crimes. But the prosecution had many tricks and theories that were presented. The local pharmacist testified that Lizzie had tried to buy poison at his store the day before the murder. He didn't sell it to her. The family doctor, Dr. Bowen, saw Abby Borden on August 2nd. 
She said that she and Andrew both woke up very ill, and she suggested she may have been poisoned. Dr. Bowen doubted it at the time, but with Bridget also unexplainably ill on the day of the murders, it now seemed a distinct possibility. A neighbor, Alice Russell, tells the court Lizzie visited her the night of August 3rd to tell her about some premonitions of bad things happening. Lizzie was nervous about Andrew's dealings with business partners and worried that someone would attack her father. Another witness testified that Lizzie was seen burning the blue dress she had been wearing the morning of the murders, claiming it was covered in old paint. Emma confirmed that Lizzie had burned the dress, but that it was a family system for discarding old fabrics and papers. Dr. Bowen agreed with the defense that the morphine he'd given Lizzie after the murders may have impacted her statements to police. There was no murder weapon officially found. The prosecution presented an axe head they thought could have been the murder weapon, but had no explanation of what happened to the handle. Lizzie's statements to the police could not be used as evidence since she hadn't been Mirandized, except they didn't call it Miranda then. They just said that she had, should have been able to consult with an attorney. There were some great theories about Lizzie may have gotten away with it. Did she strip naked and beat her stepmother and father to death with an axe? Is that how she managed to not get blood on anything? And at the start of the trial, during the prosecution's opening statements, the prosecution brought out some plaster busts of Andrew and Abby's smashed heads and set them out for the jury to see. Lizzie fainted cold away when she saw them. And the defense used this as evidence that she could never have committed such atrocious violence. She was far too frail. The jury took less than 90 minutes. Not guilty. Lizzie let out a cry of relief in the courtroom and asked to go back home. She had been held in the Taunton jail for 10 months. After the trial, Lizzie was ostracized from the people who she depended on before and during her trial. Friends and church acquaintances avoided her. Newspapers wrote articles thinly veiling their accusation that she had gotten away with murder. Lizzie and Emma moved across town to the nicer section of Fall River, where they lived together in a home they called Maplecroft. Amelia, what do you call your home? Do you have a fancy name for it? Uh, no, because I live in an apartment. But even at, even at your house you grew up in, did you guys have like a fancy name for it? So we didn't. However, that's really common in Europe. Like yeah. our Aunt Ruth, when she lived in England, her house had a name. I mean, over here, we call ours the compound because my house and mom's house are right next to each other. Mm -hmm. But other than that, yeah, I don't know anybody else in the area who names their house. I just I thought it was just kind of a funny thing. Anyway, kids tormented the women. Uh, they would litter the yard with garbage, throw objects at the house, pull pranks on the women. I couldn't find any details about the actual pranks that were pulled. And I bet that they would have been both horrifying and hilarious. Um, and they would taunt Lizzie mercilessly. She was forced to withdraw into the house more and more. She did, however, continue her love of the arts and theater. And she would often have people from various productions come and stay at Maplecroft. Circus performers, travelers, stage acts. She dropped the name Lizzie and started going by the name Lizbeth. I think I would have gone with something a little bit further away from Lizzie, you know, maybe like Sheila, but whatever, that's me. Uh, in 1897, she was again accused of shoplifting, although never charged, and this caused her more and more to withdraw into the house. She was venturing out less and less at this point. 
Emma, who was living with Lizzie at this house called Maplecroft, uh, did not love this life that they had together. She was, um, I guess she wasn't thrilled about all the the visitors that came, you know, that uh, that Lizzie never left the house. Um, and there was a one actress who came. Her name was Nancy something or other. I didn't write down her name. Emma seemed to be very upset about the relationship between Lizzie and Nancy. And so there were, there were rumors that it could have been a lesbian relationship. Um, it wasn't something that Lizzie talked about with anybody. And so there was no real quote proof of it either way. So Emma and Lizzie had a falling out in 1904 and Emma packed up and left for New Hampshire. And the two women would never speak to each other again. No one except the two of them know what that fight was over which is really interesting that even after they died, the people who had been there when the, the fight or whatever it was took place still never told anybody what it was about. So there's kind of this, this secrecy around it, even after, you know, all these years later. So Lizzie lived her lonely life in Maplecroft until her death in 1927. She is buried in Oak Grove Cemetery with her mother, father, stepmother, and sister Emma, who actually passed away eight days after Lizzie did. So their whole family is buried there in that same plot down in uh, that Oak Grove Cemetery. So um, I have actually here four interesting little add-ons that we can talk about. Um, but did you want to talk about the hauntings first? And then we can talk about my my four last little little pieces there. There's some theories. There's some deathbed confessions. There's, you know, some stuff here. Okay. So some of the ghosts here. So the main type of hauntings people experience at the Borden house are lights turning on and off by themselves. And this often happens when multiple people are standing in a room and like everyone can see the light switches and no one's standing near them. Footsteps are often heard on the second and third floors and are usually accompanied by the sounds of doors opening and closing, even when no one is on those floors. So it'll be like just a caretaker in the house. They're hearing people upstairs, but no one's home. So a ghostly figure of a woman is often witnessed in the basement, and many think it's the ghost of Lizzie Borden trying to hide key evidence. Uh, It seems to be kind of playing on a loop. It's not a ghost that interacts with anyone. There's also a ghost cat, Beth. Uh, Okay, yeah. Which I'm sure you have something to say about that later. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. There is a ghost cat that can be heard meowing about on the third floor in a room that once belonged to the maid known as Maggie. Also, one time it should be noted that Abby Borden found a decapitated cat in their basement. Yes, I saw that. So that could also be where uh the cat is from yeah Uh, and there was no explanation whatsoever of where this random decapitated cat came from Mm -mm. other haunting incidents include seeing a shadow silhouette of a woman wearing a bonnet walking around the first floor perfume bottles being thrown from one side of the room to another multiple evps being captured notably some of the evps capture people speaking in gaelic And those are kind of the most common ones people find. And then I found this really nice article from Country Living Magazine. 
And it's titled, I Spent the Night in Lizzie Borden's House. Here's what happened. It's by Lindsay Matthews. It came out October 12, 2017. So it's a really long article. I'm only going to read a short excerpt from it. But it's really nice. And they have really great photos in it. I highly suggest if you're interested in learning a little more about this to go check it out. Because it's really well written. And I I was reading over it. And I was going to, you know, you you read over things to get research. And the more I read it, I was like, I'm just going to read this which I normally never just read articles outright on the show, but this, I really liked it. Okay. Three loud blasts rang through the house. I must have nodded off because the fire alarm tore me out of a shallow sleep. And then the screaming started. What was that? My sister Lauren whispered in the dark next to me. I could barely think straight over the sound of the three 18-year-old girls in the room next to us screaming the ghosts must have just set off the fire alarm. I looked at my phone. It was just after 3 a.m. Only a couple hours left before the sun came up. Up until that point, my sister and I had been trying our best and failing to get some rest in the same bedroom where Lizzie Borden's stepmother, Abby, was brutally murdered with an axe. I don't know how I let myself be talked into this experience. Halloween is my least favorite holiday, and I had nightmares well into high school after watching Nosiferatu when I was 12 years old. Yet, somehow, I let Lauren, who loves horror movies, convince me to spend the night in the murder room at the Lizzie Borden Bread and Breakfast Museum. After the fire alarm went off with no explanation around 3.08 a.m., Lauren and I just gave up and sat there in the bed trying not to let our imaginations run wild all over the implausible explanations as to why that would have happened. It didn't help my anxiety that Lauren decided to start searching the internet and discovered that some people referred to the hour between 3 and 4 a.m. as the witching hour or the devil's hour because they believe it's when paranormal forces are most powerful. Finally, around 6 a.m., The sun came up and we got dressed and tried desperately not to drive away as quickly as possible. At breakfast, all the other guests were talking about the rogue fire alarm. Overhearing us, the employee who was making our eggs and pancakes came into the dining room. What time did you say the fire alarm went off? He asked. When we told him it was just after 3 a.m., he paused and started to look a little stressed out. Well, this is an old house, so the wiring isn't perfect, he stated. But I would be lying to you if I said the same thing doesn't happen once every couple of months, always around the same time of night. Whether or not that's true, or he was just trying to scare us even more, I knew that I was ready to leave, so we finished our breakfast, put our bags in the car, and left town as quickly as possible. And again, that is an excerpt from Lindsay Matthews' October 12, 2017 piece in Country Living Magazine, I Spent the Night in Lizzie Borden's House. Here's what happened. That's fun. Yeah. I like that a lot. The the fire alarm going off in the middle of the night when you're away from home is, is terrifying no matter where. But definitely in Lizzie Borden's house and then to find out in the morning that like, oh, you know, every couple of months, like it just kind of goes haywire and and that happens like that's no, thank you. I mean, I've talked about it briefly on the show about how when I was in high school, having some very paranormal stuff happening and one night my fire alarm going off in my house and it like it's it to this day, it, it I hear a fire alarm going off and it like takes me back there. 
Like mm. there is nothing scarier than that happening. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I'm all nervous because I'm staying here by myself. And now if the fire alarm goes off in the middle of the night, I might just hide under the blankets. Ooh. <laughs> I'll be texting you in the middle of the night. The fire alarm's going off. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody come save me. <laughs> all right. So I have here um, two deathbed confessions. A farmhand story and uh, a, an alternate explanation to the deaths of Abby and Andrew Borden. What would you like to hear first? Dealer's choice. Okay. So the first story is the farmhand story. This is a guy who he was just a laborer in the area and he's completely in love with Lizzie. He had actually asked for her hand in marriage. His, her father had um, completely denied him like, no way you're not marrying my daughter. But the father had hired him that morning, the morning of the murders to do some work in the yard, just do a little bit of yard cleanup. So it's uh, late morning and he's wrapping up all of his work and he has all of his junk in the wheelbarrow ready to take it over to the dump when Lizzie appears at the back door with a rag and a hatchet. And so she you know, is using the rag to wipe off the hatchet and then she walks over and she puts them in the wheelbarrow and so, says, you're going to the dump? Great. Can you just take these to the dump with you? And so he doesn't think anything of it and he brings it and he you know, dumps all the stuff off and he goes home and has some lunch and he's coming back later in the afternoon and he notices that there's this huge commotion going on at the house and then when he finds out what what happened about the murder he's like uh and then he got very nervous that he had actually disposed of evidence with with this murder and he went back to the dump himself um but he was too late there had been a couple of other loads of stuff that came in and just covered over the whole area and so he was not able to find the axe or the rag or anything um and so he he really took that as a sign that maybe he should avoid getting involved uh but as time went on he actually felt so guilty about the fact that he had maybe destroyed the evidence from the case that he ended up moving away altogether and never talked about it again. So that's kind of the the farmhand's story about, hey, Lizzie did it. And then there's this other story about uh, John Morse. So he was the brother-in-law from the first marriage that had breakfast there with the Bordens the morning of the murder. He stayed at the house the night before and he goes off in the morning uh, to either run errands or visit friends. I'm not exactly sure, but he had to take some sort of trolley to get there and back. So he comes back in the afternoon after the bodies have been found and all of the commotion is going on at the house. And he wasn't necessarily concerned about what had happened. In fact, he was observed to pick a pear from a pear tree and just casually ate it. He never asked what the commotion was. Um, he just sort of like, you know, just just rolled with it. And uh, when he spoke to the police, he he gave the police, this is very odd, the badge number of the conductor on the trolley that he was on. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't pay attention to the conductors on the train when I'm on there ever. Like, I could barely tell you what the guy looked like. So it just, it seemed very suspicious that he would know the conductor's badge number on, on such a, a random day like that. 
there was some speculation out there that maybe John Morse and Lizzie had planned the murder together and they were going to take the money and run off together. And it just, Lizzie getting accused of it was just, it, it didn't work out at all. So, um, so that's the story of John Morse. So now for the deathbed confessions, right? So uh, Bridget slash Maggie, the Irish maid who worked mm-hmm. there, Um, She actually up and left Fall River and moved smack across the country to Montana. And so she lived out her life in Montana and there she is on her deathbed and she summons her best friend and says that she wants to tell her something about the murders. So the best friend heads over and by the time she gets to Bridget's house, Bridget feels better. And so she keeps her secret. She doesn't confess it to anybody. And then uh, a couple of days later, she's feeling better, feeling better, feeling better, dies. No warning, nothing. Just And so whatever her secret was, it died with her. And so she, she never told anybody. And I would, I would have loved to have known what her secret was. Um, okay. And so the last one, the last deathbed confession is actually Lizzie Borden's supposed deathbed confession. So Lizzie claimed that she had a boyfriend at the time of the murders and that her father was adamantly opposed to Lizzie dating this man. Lizzie says that her boyfriend did it. He murdered Abby and then waited in a closet for Andrew to come home. He sent Lizzie out to hide in the barn so she didn't have to watch what happened. And then he killed Andrew. But... her her whole life there was no there was no record nobody knew anything about lizzie ever having a boyfriend she she never even had a suitor um same thing with her sister emma she she never dated anyone it it was just kind of like a, a crazy idea that you know like when did when did lizzie borden have this this boyfriend that nobody ever heard of nobody what was his name george um george glass Remember from the Brady Bunch, the day that Jan gets the invisible, she she makes up a boyfriend, and his name's George Glass. These are these are the connections I make. I I watched a lot of TV as a kid. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my story. Yeah, that was great. Bravo, Beth. That was a really good job. Oh, uh, yeah, the whole thing was wild. There was so many. It it just seemed very obvious to me going over everything that she did it and. Um, she got off. Yeah, well, I mean, the it, it seems like she got off because she was a woman. Yes, very much so. And if she that, did it. That's why she got off. I mean, let me tell you, being a woman, you don't get. There's not really a woman card. I guess the only time it comes in handy is like if it's in the 1800s and you're a woman who just like bludgeoned a bunch of people to death with an axe. Yeah, because most people are not going to believe that you did that, right? And Crazy. that's what the defense was was planted on, and it worked. Yeah. No, but at the same time, like there was no like actual evidence tying her to the murders. Mm. That that was like that was the crazy part. Like there was no blood on her. They there were no fingerprints. Like nobody saw her do it. Like it it was just it was wild. It's and, like yeah. that John Mulaney bit about like detectives in like the 1930s or whatever it is, where someone comes in and is like Oh, detective, there's blood over there. And he's like, gross, clean it up. Like, what would the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Like it was pretty easy to go to a murder at that time, you know? Yeah, you know, like I, I watch a ton of forensic files. Um mm-hmm. so I was kind of looking at this case through my forensic files lens and like trying to pick apart like where things weren't adding up. But I, I gotta say, with all the science now, like don't kill anybody. You're not gonna get away with it. I mean, unless it's like a totally random person. Please don't kill anybody, even if it's a random person. I mean, you shouldn't, but you could get away with it if it was a random person. Perhaps, but I'm still not going to endorse that. No. Please please don't kill anyone. We sh- we should all be nice to each other. Yeah. If you if you really can't stand someone that much that you feel like you're going to physically harm them, you need to remove yourself and find a counselor to talk about your anger issues with. That's my second public service announcement of the night. Beth, you are <laughs> I know. Hey, you know, going out with a bang for the the last episode of the season. Yeah, you're speaking your truth. I love it. All right. Well, I think that was great. That was that was wonderful. Yeah. Um, Do we want to go on to our drive by ghostings now? Sure. So we have a bazillion of them. Yes. And some are quite long, so. Okay. Well, some people sent their own files in, too. So I think it's great we got so many. I personally have not read a single one yet. I wanted, like, real reactions, you know. <laughs> and uh, also, I just had a busy week. So thank you so much, everyone, for sending them in. And this is the first time uh, we've heard them. So this first one comes to us from Michelle R. Titled, My Family Home Ghost Story. Good evening, Amelia and Beth. My name is Michelle Ross, and I was suggested to write to you about my paranormal experiences by my cohort, Barry Corbett of the Boston Paranormal Investigation Society. I had told him the stories of my haunted childhood home in upstate New York and thought you'd might like to hear them or have them for your podcast. So here it goes. My family's home was first built, we believe, in the late 1960s. At the time, it was just a one-story home, occupied by the Morehouse family. The Morehouses had two children, Charlene the oldest and Shane the youngest. On February 26, 1971, the two children got into a heated argument. Both parents were out of the house at the time. Shane grabbed his father's 22 caliber rifle, climbed a tree outside the house, and shot his sister through the bedroom window. <gasps> that is awful. Yep. The children were 12 and 11 years old, respectively, at the time. I actually have an old newspaper photo of Charlene's body being wheeled out of the house. The Morehouses continued to live in the home for a year after Charlene's death until a fire tore through the home. Oh my goodness gracious. Beth, if you got to do your PSAs, my PSA is please store your guns very safely away from children. Okay. Another couple bought the property. I don't have a record of their names and proceeded to build a second story onto the remaining cement structure of the original home. The husband of the couple passed away from natural causes in the second floor master bedroom in 1984. My parents bought the house the year after. I didn't find out about the house's past until I was in my early teens. We experienced all kinds of strange things and still do to this day. From shadow figures to slamming doors and cabinets, 
objects pushed or thrown off of shelves, talking or giggling to full-bodied apparitions. Two major incidents stand out. The first was when my sister and I were probably about 12 and 8. I am the older sister. We were talking about school stuff in my room when my dad came in and told us to get ready for bed. I walked into the bathroom and my sister left into her room next door. I came out of the bathroom after a few minutes and saw my sister standing in the doorway to my bedroom, facing inward, talking to someone. I watched her for a moment before saying, Leah, who are you talking to? She turned to me, screamed, and started crying. How did you get behind me so fast? She cried. What are you talking about? I asked. I've been in the bathroom for at least five minutes. No, you weren't. You were sitting at your vanity, brushing your hair over your face. Needless to say, my sister never came into my room for several months after. Seeing a ghost is strange enough. What's even stranger is that our bedrooms are both on the second floor. If it was Charlene that she saw, that part of the house didn't exist when she was alive, which would make her a very intelligent haunt. The second major incident occurred many years later when my sister and I were both in college. My mother had come back from the grocery store and walked into our two-car garage. As soon as my mother walked to the door, she saw the shadow figure apparition of a small figure leaning against my dad's truck. She couldn't see any features, but she described it as having long hair, wearing a cape, and a witch hat of some kind. This would not be the first time someone had seen her in some kind of witch outfit. My mother said she became furious and yelled, get out of my house. Without even thinking, she charged after the apparition. She said the figure ran to the other side of the truck and played kind of a back and forth game, always staying the opposite side from my mother. Finally, the apparition turned and disappeared through what used to be the original house's front door. Since then, the activity in the house has calmed down some, with the exception of when my sister and I come to visit. Our parents always tell us as soon as either of us leaves to go back home within 24 hours, Charlene always do something or a number of somethings to let us know she's upset. This includes throwing objects, slamming cabinets, shaking my mother's glass fruit bowls, or mimicking things that we used to do as kids. Anyway, I have a million different stories from that place, but those are probably the creepiest. I hope you found these entertaining at least. Thank you for listening. Sincerely, Michelle Ross. Wow. Those were really great, Michelle. Thank you. Incredible. That's a great one to start things off with. That's yeah. Yeah. And I, so as, as you were telling the part about uh, playing uh, back and forth around the truck there, Mm -hmm. For some reason, in in my mind, the apparition was wearing the scream mask uh-huh. and had like the the black robe on, <laughs> like uh-huh. <laughs> just just like that. Like I'm I'm going back and forth trying to just not have you catch me. But <laughs> that's that was great. Spooky, spooky. Yes. Okay. So next one we have here is from Matt Winters, and this is actually a recording. Hey guys, this one goes out to Will Fox. You'll see why. Hope you enjoy. 
I'm also heading to Wilson Castle in Vermont for a ghost hunt this weekend, so hopefully I'll have some more for you. Let me know if this doesn't work. I've never tried to send a voice memo in an email before. Matt. Well, let's all find out together. Yeah. And I believe this is Matt the Mailman. We read uh, from last week. Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Matt. This, this story actually goes out to Will Fox for a couple of reasons. First off, it takes place at Fort Ticonderoga in New York. And second of all, I am from South Shore, Mass, and I do sometimes have a Boston accent. Uh, so, you know, if you need any help with that, just uh, hit me up and I'll uh, offer my services as a tutor for 40 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so I used to do reenactments for the Revolutionary War and the French and Indian War. I used to go to Ticonderoga. I used to go to Fort Four, Fort George. Um, Ticonderoga was definitely my favorite definitely the spookiest so it's set back from the main road quite a distance and the access road going into it is pretty well covered by trees uh, you can't really see the sky at night or during the day for that matter during the summer when this actually happened you know the leaves were all still on the trees it was very dark at night walking down that road So, of course, we decided, you know, a good six or seven of us, we were going to walk down that road. A little background, there is this area called the French Lines, where one of the biggest battles, maybe not the biggest, but one of the one of the big battles at uh, in the French Indian War uh, happened. And there's this big red cross made out of two huge I-beams just bolted together. And it's kind of creepy in and of itself. So we were walking down there because it was, it's supposed to be haunted. As we're walking, you know, it's me and these other guys walking, you know, in a line across the road. I can barely see the guy next to me. It's that dark. You know, we can hear the footsteps on, you know, we're all wearing these 18th century shoes. And so you can hear him pretty well on the, on the pavement. As we're walking, I remember it's very, very dark. I see off in the distance there's this... Um, there's a light and you know it, it kind of looks like a lantern light or something like that as it starts getting closer i realize it's a guy you know dressed all in white which is weird because you know i why can i see him so far off when i can't see the guy next to me kind of just passed it off as like you know just my eyes being weird and so he gets closer and he doesn't seem to be like slowing down he doesn't seem to be moving around to get around us and so me and me and my friend, we kind of split up to let him through. Didn't hear him walk by, really. Um, as he walked by, we kind of got back together. I looked back, and he was gone. Just completely gone, nothing there. I looked at my friend. I asked, You definitely saw him? And he was like, yep, I definitely saw him. He's, I don't know where he is. That was the, that was the first time I ever saw what I fully believe was a ghost, a full-bodied apparition. Um, and yeah, that, that's my story from Fort Ticonderoga. Uh, hopefully I can get back there at some point and, and hopefully I have some more ghost stories for you in the near future. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Great story. That was mm-hmm. really good. We got to tell Will Fox about that one too. That was great. Mm-hmm. I don't even know. See, like God bless him for like thinking it was a ghost because if that was me, I would be like, that guy disappeared. He's definitely going to kill us. Like I would think he was just like hiding in the woods, like ready to pounce out at us. 
So this is from an email that we got from Jen. Hello, Amelia and Beth. So excited for the new season. This is my drive-by ghosting creepy kids edition. Ooh. When my daughter was a toddler, she would say random, creepy, yet very specific things out of nowhere to me. We never mentioned ghosts or discussed anything paranormal whatsoever around the kids, so her comments were extra spooky. One day, when my daughter was about three years old, we were hanging out in the living room together. There's a bedroom off of the living room at that, that at the time was a spare bedroom to which the door was always closed and locked to keep the kids out. The door to that room rattled, which was unusual because it never did that. It startled me a little. And when I looked over at the door, my daughter said in her tiny elfy toddler voice, don't worry, mommy, that was just the ghost. I turned my head slowly to look at her and then asked her to repeat herself. She did. I then said, what do you mean? And she said, it was the ghost, the ghost behind the white door. Shocked face emoji. The next My Kid Gives Me Nightmare story was when she was around the same age, maybe four. We were sitting together outside in the front yard, and she asked me, who's that man? While pointing at the house, and I said, what man? And she said, the old man, right there. As she pointed to the front door, I said, I don't see an old man. And then she said, oh, he's gone, with a shrug and a tone of, oh, well, you missed him. When she was even younger, she'd point at the attic door or stare at it often when I carried her to her bedroom. Not sure what that was all about. How did I ever sleep back then? Anyway, those are my drive-by ghosting creepy kids stories. I hope you liked them. P.S. Amelia, I spotted you in Hubie Halloween. You famous now. Thumbs up, thumbs up. Hugs and kisses. Jen. Thanks, Jen. Great story. Those are creepy kids stories. Uh, yes. Don't worry, mommy. It's the ghost. (laughs) Jen, are you sure you have kids? (laughs) Are they, are they really ghosts? Very spooky, spooky, spooky stuff. Thank you. And thanks for seeing me in the movie. All right. Next story is another one from Joe Galinas, who has sent us a couple now. This one is entitled Haunted Pub Crawl. And it comes with photos, which we can post on our social media. Happy Halloween. I'm sending a couple pictures along to go with the ghost story. My wife and I were on vacation in Wilmington, North Carolina, when we decided to go on a haunted pub crawl through downtown. One of the stops was the Orton Billards and Pool Room. Our guide has told us the story of how the bar was in the basement of the Orton Hotel. The four-story hotel, built in 1888, caught fire and burned down in January 1949. After the fire, they found that one person was caught and killed. The hotel was not rebuilt, but the basement bar remains. Our guide regaled us with all the spooky sightings that had happened over the years. As we were getting ready to leave, my wife and I were looking at a picture on the wall. It showed the burnt shell of the hotel with fire trucks spraying water on it. That's when she said she felt cold drifts of water on her shoulder, but it wasn't wet. As the group was walking outside, I turned to take a picture of my phone towards the end of the bar where we had just been standing. Nobody was standing down there. 
At the next bar, I was looking at the photos and noticed a shadow in the picture at the far right end of the bar, right next to the picture on the wall. The photos I included are the ones I took of the bar, one that's a close-up of the shadow and the picture of the Orton Hotel after the fire, the same one we were looking at hanging on the wall. Thanks for listening. Joe. Thanks, Joe. And this yeah, is a the, wicked spooky photo. Yes, there is what appears to definitely be a very dark, very shadow, very figure standing at the end of the bar. Very spooky. Yes. Something I would not have been thrilled to have seen after a few beers on a pub crawl. Mm-mm. Beth, would you like to read the next one? I would. So the next one is from Michelle S. Hello, Beth and Amelia. I've Hello. been binging your hey. I've been binging your podcast while at work. That's in quotes. Like so many people, that means staring at my computer screen alone in the kitchen table. None of us will ever take the mundane office small talk for granted again, will we? Your podcast really helps me get through the days, and I was so happy when I finally made it to season three and found out that Beth was back. Woo! Yay! <laughs> I was happy to be back for season three. And also, as somebody who is working in my living room, I completely hear your pain about just being work from home. It's it's nice some days, but most days it's just lonely. Like Beth, I love going up to Canada. Yay, Canada! I'm very disappointed that my biannual trips to see my sister had to be canceled this year, but your show reminded me of a spooky happening that took place a few years ago. My 10-year-old son and I took a day trip from my sister's home down to a little town on the shore, I forget the name, to spend the day poking around stores and having some lunch. We ended up taking a stroll down on the docks because my son, Dave, was very interested in sea life at that time and wanted to see if we could see fish or eels swimming around. As we walked, I kept hearing someone say, over here, come here. I didn't think much of it, but every few minutes the voice would call out again, and although we were walking, the voice sounded the same distance away each time we heard it. Hello? I said, turning around to see if we were being followed. As soon as we looked, my son said, Mom, look! And in the water, on the opposite edge of the dock, we saw an octopus. What? I could not believe it, (laughs) and neither could Dave. We didn't hear the voice again that day, but I am convinced it was an old sea captain trying to catch our attention to see this rare and incredible sight. Dave is now in high school and is looking forward to going to college to study marine biology. That's my story. Love your show. Mish. What? <laughs> That's great. And <laughs> an octopus. octopus in yeah, Canada. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like... <laughs> That is incredible. I mean, Canada's really big. I'm sure that octopi can get into all sorts of fun places in Canada, but that's crazy. Like That is crazy. That's a great yeah. story. That's a fun story. Very much so. So thank you, Michelle. Okay. Up next, I know this girl. I had put it out on my Facebook, and I was very surprised when all of a sudden Julia showed up in our inbox. Julia is my future sister-in-law, and I didn't oh, know she excellent. had a ghost story. So I, this, I think that sh- I think that we should have known about this far earlier in season three than I and it very is, last night. It is um a very, very, very scary story. 
And I love that. It's, it's terrifying. I, it, this actually is the only one that I did read over cause I saw it and I was like, Julia, um, and quick shout out to Julia who became a Reiki master last week and has just opened her very first brick and mortar business. So if anyone is in the greater Bucks County area and you need energy work done, or you like yoga or cool teas and stuff, go visit Julia at the Ride and Vibe Academy in Newtown. Okay, here's what state's that in? Pennsylvania. Did Excellent. I not say Pennsylvania? You did not. Whoops. In Pennsylvania. Okay. My friend and I were driving through the town of Richboro, Pennsylvania on a late night. All of a sudden, we saw a girl walking on the side of the road. She looked like something was wrong. She was holding her shoes and mascara was running down her face. She looked pale. As we were pulling up to the stop sign, she approached. She turns to us and instantly, me and my friend turn to each other and scream. To describe her face, she just looked, quote, blank. Her eyes were droopy and there was nothing behind them. We start speeding away frantically, and all of a sudden, I get a call from a blocked number on my cell phone. I was hesitant to answer. I was hesitant to answer, but decided to pick it up. All I hear is, this is Becca, help me, in a frantic, helpless voice. I instantly hung up and started panicking. I didn't know anyone named Becca, and I just knew with my entire being that that was the girl <laughs> very scary very scary very scary how did becca get your phone number i don't know that is like, so so scary yeah that one almost it for some reason and i don't know why but you remember it was like on one of our first episodes um brad from canada sent us a drive-by ghosting about the girl like spinning around yep. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in the median on the street on like the snowy night and for some reason that just reminded me of it just like yes very scary mm-hmm. very much so yeah just oh terrifying goodness. yeah for real well thank you so much Jules for sending that to us that was great and very very scary and uh definitely gonna keep me up tonight <laughs> mm. yeah I I will not be watching any haunting of Hill House tonight. Have you Mm-mm. seen that yet? No, not yet. Uh, you should watch it. Good. Uh, I can't watch it by myself, and when I do watch it, I watch it on my iPad with my headphones in, and I can only have one headphone in at a time because if I put both of them in, I get too scared. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to like. <laughs> I have to be able to hear the sound out of my other ear of like what's going on to remind me that I'm not actually in this show. But yeah, it's um it's been delightfully scary so far. Good. That's great. All right. And so here is the last drive-by ghosting for oh, this is the second to last drive-by ghosting for season three. I was gonna say, I I believe one of the hosts has one that they oh, wanted to tell. Yes, very much so. But let me tell this one first. Okay. So this was sent to us. Where did it come through Facebook? Mm -hmm. This was sent to us through Facebook uh, and it's actually been posted on Reddit by user agent of pain. And the title of it is, it just occurred to me. 
So I was visiting my mom this evening. I'm struggling to be a good son. It doesn't come natural. None of this is actually relevant. I guess I just want to start off demonstrating how actually sincere I am about this, how factually true all of this is. We chatted a bit. Childhood stories came up. She claimed I was a bit of an odd child, and despite the years of abuse from a monster of a father, and yes, being this honest is tough, but I take solace in the fact that I have at least some modicum of anonymity through this screen, I've turned out rather well-adjusted. I am a healthy man of 28. I eat too many pizza rolls. I'm to be married soon. Anyway, the stories she told me intrigued me. From her perspective, they were always rather worrisome. I wasn't always healthy. For some reason, I have the pictures. I had been hospitalized for two weeks when I was very little, and my parents braced for the worst. Evidently, I lived. Full recovery. I have some fond memories of the hospital, but my mother does not. What piqued my curiosity and urged me to delve into my past was a statement that my logical mind has trouble dealing with. I do remember the old farmhouse, which I was born in. I do remember several things about that house. I know that my memories may be tainted and degraded by time, but things I do remember I asked about and had them verified. We came about it this way. I know that historically during the late 1980s, times were rather tough, economically speaking. My mother confirmed. I will not quote unless I am absolutely sure I can recall the exact words. I asked if the pregnancy was difficult because of this, and she paused a minute. Not difficult, she said, but rather unusual. In what manner, I asked. And she again paused, seemed to search for words, which she is likely to do as her first language is not English. She finally gathered all the key words she needed to sufficiently explain. I used to eat ashes and clay. I would burn pine or apple, then wait and eat the ashes. And what of the clay, I asked. I had some for sculpture, sculpture work, but I smelled it and was compelled to eat it. I mulled this over. My first thought was pika. I asked about this, and she affirmed that it was a possibility. Well, I thought, that's not too weird. An exaggerated perception of events that seemed unnerving. I voiced this, and she again acknowledged that was possible, too. Then she pursed her lips, searched for more words in English. But then there were birds. Many, many big black birds. I quickly googled common black birds in the northeast, and I showed her pictures. Hmm, she nodded, and I pointed, indicating starlings. A swarm, like bees. I asked what of these birds. They were rather small. She told me that on the day of my birth, a bright September morning, prior to labor, she was watching the birds in the front yard, chirping, squawking, calling by the hundreds. She called them a wave of black and beaks. She went to the kitchen to fetch a light breakfast. Toast, she said. And, as if orchestrated by some unseen signal, they burst through the screen door, hundreds of them. They flew en masse around and about throughout the ground floor, circling her in the kitchen, turning back, flying around and around. I stopped her abruptly. Surely this is an exaggeration at best, Mom. And if this was the case, it's no wonder you went into labor. You were given quite a shock. She denied it being a tall tale and said that it was hours before she went into labor. She said she took it as an omen. I smiled and told her that was indeed peculiar. Maybe it was a grimace. Rather than the smile I pictured because she followed it up unprompted with another story. She told me how I was apt to stand in my crib staring at the wall, 
occasionally gesturing to be picked up by something unseen. Rubbish, I thought immediately. And then I chastised myself for being a disobedient son and how that reaction was very likely to be disrespectful. I asked her to go on. She took her leave off to find something while I sloshed around the room temperature coffee. She returned with a baby book, one that outlined all of my firsts, all of my special moments. On one entry, she describes how impressed she is of how capable of an escape artist I was. At a year and four months, I had one early morning, managed to escape the confines of my crib, crawled across the hallway, and made it into the spare bedroom. She had found me there, waiting in the cold corner. Odd, I stated, and she nodded her assent. Next, she showed me a few Polaroids of baby me to toddler me. I recollected some memories. She seemed disturbed, and I pursued. My memory was likely faulty. In abstract, I remember my babysitter, or housekeeper. I'm not too sure of her title. Maybe it was a nanny. My father worked during the day, and we had help who lived with us in exchange for services rendered. He was a car salesman slash real estate broker, and when he sold a car, it was lobsters for dinner. When it was a house, it was a steak. And when it was a slow week, month, or year, it was rice and vegetables, and some sort of preserved fish called maiolchi. Anyway, Mom would cook and clean the house, as well as tend to our rather large garden. Please be assured that it was rather large, not my memory distorting it because I was very small. And Bibi would take care of me when Mom was busy. She would play with me, sing to me. I remember that well. Most I remember her picking me up, the way she smelled like earth and fire, how warm her ebony skin was when we played in the living room, the sunshine shining on us. I recall her face with sharp clarity, her soft golden eyes, her high cheekbones, her short fuzzy hair, her full smile. I remember the songs she would sing, and I remember my mom not trusting her, or how concerned she was when she left for the day, and how forlorn I must have been, crying for the rest of the night. I remember when she left. There was a fire in the spare bedroom. Father was very upset, yelled at my mom the entire time. Luckily, mom had been able to put out the fire before it got too big. It had started in the closet, she said. I asked her finally why Bibi left. What had happened? Where was she now? I'm getting married soon and would love for her to attend. This is where my mother was unsettled. She looked me dead in the face, and with no deception or doubt, she said, We were alone. We were always alone in that house. Unconceivable. Highly unlikely. But then again. Great story. Yes. Thank you, Agent of Pain. Otherwise known as Mario. Thank you so much. And that was very well written. Mm-hmm. It's a great story. I enjoyed that one. It had a lot of good vocabulary in it. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. So, do we have any reviews? Nope. No emails? Other than all the ones we just read. Well, those are drive-by <laughs> listings. <laughs> so, I'm hoping that for season four, our good friend Daniel sends us a new story. Yes. I don't think we got any season three stories from Daniel. Nope. Maybe we're not his friends anymore. No, we've still been hearing from him. Since oh, okay. stuff. He comments on Instagram and Facebook and stuff, but yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh that's about all I got. Oh didn't you want to tell everyone about your drive by ghosting? Day? I had a drive by ghosting today. We're we're having a little bit of work done at our house and so there's a bit of tension 
uh, among the adult family members in my house uh, about where things should go and who should be picking up what and, you know, all that stuff that happens when when there's going to be remodeling and stuff done. So I'm sitting at the kitchen table this morning drinking my coffee and I'm being mad and I I look over just out of the corner of my eye. I see one of my cats waiting at the door to go out and I thought it was lightning. And then I look over full on to see and it's not lightning and it's not thunder. It's a black cat. And before my brain could even really like process much more than who is that? We don't have a black cat. It was gone. Just gone. Like it just swished its tail and almost like um when you watch Alice in Wonderland, the the cat, the Cheshire cat there. Mm-hmm. Just sort of that like the tail swish, gone. I was like, wow. And I immediately sent Amelia a whole bunch of very capitalized letters. Yeah. In in a text message. I just saw a ghost cat in my house. So who I actually think it is is my mom's old cat shenanigans who lived here for a while and he was a horrible horrible animal um but she loved him to death he would wake her up in the morning by climbing onto her bed and biting her on the bridge of the nose Mm. you know that that seems reasonable right he was so mean he would hide under under the dining room table he'd sit on the chairs and he'd wait for you to walk by and he would jump out four sets of claws completely at the ready and he would like attach himself to your leg like up on your thigh and start chewing on you and so you're dancing around it and you could be walking by in shorts or you know like your bathrobe or like there there were times when he drew blood there were time, many times he drew blood from people he was we loved him Anyway, so he went out one night and he never came back. Mm. So we're not really sure what happened to him, except I'm pretty sure that today he showed up at my house to tell me to just get over it and calm down. And then he was gone. Could be worse. A cat could be waking me up by biting me on the nose. It's true. Yeah. So. Very true. Anyway, so yeah, there was, there was a little ghost in my house today, which I thought was just fabulous. That is, that's great. Uh, that is a very spooky, wild story. Mm. I love it. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you, Beth, so much for coming back and doing season three. Oh, Thank thanks, you. Amelia, for working on season three with me. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for, uh, you know, listening and sending us your ghost stories and being a part of our community, always keeping in touch. Uh, you know, we really appreciate it. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. I hope everyone has a very fun Halloween, very spooky. And, you know, we talked about this a lot in season one. I don't feel we've really talked about it enough in season three, if at all, frankly. But, you know, Ouija boards. You don't know what you're doing with it. Don't use one. I know this Halloween, a lot of us can't go out. A lot of us are probably at home trying to be extra spooky. But, you know, if you don't know how to use one, don't start. 2020 has enough wildness going on in it. (laughs) You don't need to open up any portals. You don't need to be bringing anything in. Just just leave it to the professionals, you know. just. And in the meantime, uh, if you're looking to get in touch with us, even though we're not going to be on for a while, you can always reach out to us on social media at Go Sending in New England on Instagram. 
facebook.com backslash ghost hunting in new england on twitter at ghost hunting ne or send us an email ghost hunting in new england at gmail.com so we want to send a big season three thank you to aaron shelb and it's taken three seasons and i can finally say his name right for doing our music uh we have uh tim regan and tom reed who we would like to thank this season for coming and interviewing with us did we interview anybody else no Oh no! I, so okay, and then um, obviously our our drive by ghosting people for tonight: Matt Winters and Agent of Pain, and Michelle R and Michelle S and Jen and Joe Galinas and Julie. So yeah, keep your drive by ghostings coming all winter, and we'll have a big bonanza of them next year when we get going again. Woo! Yeah. All right, everyone, stay safe, stay well, and as always, give us a five star review. And happy hunting. I just can't help myself. Here's our old intro music, and it just shows how far we've come with our technology and how much better we can make the episode sound now. So the other thing that it makes me think about is what our original mission was, which was to look at ghost stories. And I think that we have held up over three seasons pretty true to what we set out to do. So yay, Amelia. I think that we're, uh, we're on track here. I'll see you for season four. Ghosts, ghouls, specters, poltergeists, spirits. Many names have been given to the presence that can be seen or felt or smelled, but is it real or do we just enjoy scaring ourselves? Join us, Amelia and Beth, two cousins trying to figure out history's bumps in the night. Is it residual energy, ghosts, time loops, angels? We're not going to do any demons though. We're here to hear all your best ghost stories in the region and look back at some of the area's favorite legends. So join us and our EMF readers as we try to decipher possible EVPs and talk to some experts in the paranormal realm. You can find us on Insta or Twitter at Ghost Hunting in New England or email us ghosthuntinginnewengland at gmail.com. Don't forget to click subscribe and get ready for your new favorite spooky podcast. Welcome to Ghost Hunting in New England. Bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.